The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, COVID-19 causes changes for ACB, and we reach back into the show archives. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2020. The coronavirus has brought major changes to the American Council of the Blind, as well as to the rest of the world. By far, the biggest change will be to the organization's annual conference and convention. Amidst the growing concerns about the novel coronavirus, the American Council of the Blind Board of Directors has voted unanimously to forego its annual conference and convention in Schaumburg, Illinois, in July 2020. During a special meeting of the board on March 30th, the elected leadership moved to explore ways in which members, partners, and stakeholders can continue to meet virtually through an engaging and enlightening experience. The health and safety of our members continue to be the leading voice that has guided us, said ACB President Dan Spoon. I'm proud of the thoughtful deliberation each board member gave to this difficult decision and the hard work our team in Alexandria and Minneapolis undertook to assure that the interests of those we serve remain paramount. Nonprofits around the country have faced similar challenges in recent weeks, and such difficult decisions have brought forward a wealth of resources and strategies about holding effective virtual conferences. ACB staff and volunteers are committed to assure the experience will pull from these best practices in a manner that is both innovative and accessible. While some official business will have to be put on hold, we will continue to virtually provide many of the valuable programs and breakout sessions that make the ACB conference and convention the greatest gathering in our country for Americans who are blind and visually impaired, said ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges. The support from our leaders and corporate stakeholders has been overwhelming, and we can't wait to have them join us for what will be an event that will be forever etched into ACB's history. Bridges said. According to ACB's constitution and bylaws, official business must be held in person. This means elections and other official matters will be put on hold until the 2021 convention in Phoenix. However, ACB's convention planning committee is already exploring ways to hold virtual programming, exhibits, special interest meetings, and even door prizes through a variety of innovative formats. For more information about this year's virtual convention, visit www.acbconvention.org. Information on this page will change frequently, so check it often. Most state affiliate conventions have also either been rescheduled or canceled for this year. Check with your local ACB affiliate about specific details related to your state. With additional information about ACB's adjustments caused by the coronavirus, here is Kathleen Duke. 
The American Council of the Blind is closely monitoring information about the COVID-19 virus and its impact. After much thoughtful consideration, ACB has decided to close both offices and move our work to a virtual environment until further notice. The decision was made in order to ensure the continued health and safety of our employees and their families. ACB staff will continue to take calls and emails during this period. When calling ACB's direct and toll-free office numbers, please use the recorded menu to contact our staff members directly. The health and welfare of our members is of the utmost importance, and we are actively working to confirm details and explore alternative options regarding our 2020 convention as the COVID-19 situation evolves. ACB will update our membership as soon as any developments are made. We recommend that all affiliates follow CDC guidelines for any scheduled events. You can find the most up-to-date CDC guidelines here at www.cdc.gov. We wish you all health and safety during this difficult time. Eric Bridges, ACB Executive Director, Dan Spoon, ACB President. Last week, we shared ACB's response to COVID-19, which features information about office closures, convention, community conference calls, and resources. We have been continually updating this page with new information to keep it relevant and up-to-date. You can access this page by visiting acb.org slash acb COVID-19 response. Our community conference calls can provide an opportunity for you to connect with others from the comfort of your home during this time of social distancing. We are actively updating this list with new call information as we receive it. Visit acb.org acb-community-conference-calls to access our full repository of upcoming community conference calls. ACB is aware that many of our members and affiliates are moving to a virtual environment for work, events, and other activities. To assist with this change, ACB is offering Zoom-related resources to help those who are new to the platform or would like to learn more advanced skills. To start, we are providing you with two recordings of Zoom sessions from past ACB events. The first recording provides basic tips for hosting and participating in a Zoom meeting and can be accessed by visiting tinyurl, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash WM348TS. The second recording provides troubleshooting tips and discussion related to setting up Zoom to host a meeting and can be accessed by visiting tinyurl dot com slash T-K-W-C-X-T-4. We will be offering more Zoom-related assistance for our affiliates and members soon, so please continue to check our COVID-19 response page at acb.org slash acb-covid19 response for more information. Here are some other COVID-19-related announcements. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Office of Public Affairs, Acting Secretary Chad Wolf. Statement on Real ID Enforcement Deadline. Due to circumstances resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic and the National Emergency Declaration, 
the Department of Homeland Security, as directed by President Donald J. Trump, is extending the Real ID enforcement deadline beyond the current October 1, 2020 deadline. I have determined that states require a 12-month delay and that the new deadline for Real ID enforcement is October 1, 2021. DHS will publish a notice of the new deadline in the Federal Register. The federal, state, and local response to the spread of the coronavirus in the United States necessitates a delay in this deadline. Our state and local partners are working tirelessly with the administration to flatten the curve. Therefore, we want to remove any impediments to response and recovery efforts. States across the country are temporarily closing or restricting access to their departments of motor vehicles. This action will preclude millions of people from applying for and receiving their real ID. Extending the deadline will also allow the Department of Homeland Security to work with Congress to implement needed changes to expedite the issuance of real IDs once the current health crisis concludes. Protecting both the health and national security of the American people continues to be the top priority of the President of the United States and the Department of Homeland Security. ACB Reports for April 2020 continues with an escape into the archives. From the program for January 2005, here is former ACB Reports host, Laura Oftedal. In addition to giving out scholarships, an annual tradition at the ACB convention is to hear from a talking book narrator. This year at the 2004 convention, the special guest was Mark Ashby. Here's ACB's president, Chris Gray, to introduce him. This year we have an ACB award winner, a gentleman who knows perhaps more about ACB than he ever wanted to know, having had to read this book probably several times to make it work, our People of Vision book. A gentleman who's been with Potomac Talking Books first, uh, as a monitor, starting in 1996, and later as a reader of magazines, like the Braille Forum, and then as a reader of books. Ladies and gentlemen, please join with me in welcoming Mr. Mark Ashby. Thank you, Chris. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Uh, well, as uh, oh wait a minute, before I get started, I almost forgot. I have to preface everything with uh, a comment. This book contains up to four sides per cassette. <laughs> All right, now I can continue. Uh, as Chris said, I've spent about eight and a half years or so in the talking book business, and about half of that has been as a book narrator. And uh, I got to tell you, I've gotten more of an ego boost being around UACB members for three days than I have in all the rest of that time combined. 
my wife uh, has told me, she told me yesterday, or not yesterday, Monday, after the uh, wine and cheese function that we attended, that I've been described as kind of like ACB's own Hollywood star. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, I require a trailer with a case of Evian water, fresh flowers every morning, and a mounds bar on my pillow, not an almond joy. All right? Sorry, maybe this uh, whole experience is going to my head a little bit. I do have to say, though, that I've been floored by the outpouring I've gotten during my time here. Everyone's made me and my wife feel really at home. And I thank you for spending the time that you have so far with us and getting to know us. Uh, and speaking of getting to know me, even though I feel a little bit strange talking about myself as long as I'm about to, I'm told that that's what narrators at these conventions do and who am I to buck tradition. Uh, I don't know that I have as important of information as far as things like cell phones and computer accessibility that some of the other speakers are talking about today, but what I can do is tell you a story because that's what I do. It just happens to be that this story is about little old me. Most talking book narrators that I work with came to their jobs from contacts they made in the acting field. Most of them are actors on stage and even sometimes in film and television. Uh, I toyed with the idea of acting as a career when I was an idealistic youth, but I switched my college major pretty early on from theater to English and then finally to mass communications. Uh, I also enjoy writing. I was set to actually make my living in the field of either journalism or public relations when I got my BA in 1995, and I received a one-year scholarship to attend the University of Maryland and their nationally uh, acclaimed public relations program, and I suppose I accepted that just to forestall the real world creeping in on me. It's much easier to remain a student than actually have to go out and find a job full-time. So even though I was going to graduate school pretty much full-time, pulling down nine credits a semester, I did have to find some way to make money to pay the rent. So I'd regularly go through the Washington Post's employment section to find places with flexible enough part-time work that I could pull down those nine credit hours and keep from starving to death. For several months, the only work I could find was freelance writing for a recycling uh, newsletter that was aimed at businesses and corporations, which I knew nothing about, but at least it kept food on the table and uh, my rent paid. But around the start of 1996 or the end of 95, I'm not sure which, I saw an employment notice under the heading of publishing next to the public relations section where I usually looked. And it was looking for full-time and part-time people to run recording equipment to produce books and magazines on tape. And this was for Potomac Talking Book Services, the company that I've been working with since then. This was a field that I also thought I could enjoy since I had my own modest recording studio at home for music and I'd used a lot of audio and video editing equipment in college. So I sent in my resume and I thought for sure I was going to be repeating the same process I had for the past four months of sending resumes, going on interviews, and later being called back to be told, well, someone else has been selected, even if they called me back at all. But the interview went pretty well, I thought, and I don't know if it's ever been described to you from a monitor's perspective what we have to do to get our job. But back in those days when we were still using the analog decks, we had to show that we could thread the tape on the machine correctly after being shown how to do it. And then on that tape is a, a recorded article of about five minutes in length 
and what the prospective monitor's job is to do is to listen to this article, pick out uh, the words that were missed or mispronounced, uh, switched around, anything that got in the way of the text being a perfect rendition of what was on the paper. So that was my task to do. And can I tell you that when I heard that, I knew that this was the perfect job for me. Because ever since I was a kid, I've been a stickler for detail in language. I'm that annoying kind of person who will tell you, you know, that comma doesn't belong there. And if I ever get a chance to talk to our current commander in chief, I want to say Mr. Bush is pronounced nuclear. <laughs> Among other things. So this was right up my alley. Uh, I didn't know at the time if symbiosis was a mispronunciation or not, but I'm pretty sure I caught about everything else. Uh, in fact, I know I did because a couple of days later I actually got the call that said, congratulations, we'd like to offer you the job. So I would be responsible for pushing all the buttons during the recording sessions for National Library Service books and magazines and following along in the text to catch all the types of errors that the test that I had taken during the interview was designed to show me. And for the rest of that spring semester, I worked in the evenings, Monday to Friday. Uh, we do two, I did two, two and a half hour sessions for whatever came my way, including the occasional session in Spanish, which the narrator is more responsible for catching the errors than I was, trust me. Uh, I found the atmosphere and the people at the job really welcoming, and that made me question, did I really want to go to school for public relations in the first place? Was this what I was cut out to do, and increasingly I realized that the answer to that was no, I didn't really want to do that for the rest of my life. This job made me happy, and I wanted to continue doing it. So by the summer of 1996, I decided I'll up my hours to full-time during the day, and I soon left the University of Maryland behind, and especially when I come to functions like this, I don't regret that decision one bit. Now, eventually, thank you, by the way, eventually I moved up in the ranks at the job. Uh, and by the end of my first year there, I was the person responsible for putting all the ads in the Washington Post and then interviewing and hiring and training the monitors. And I performed in that capacity about two years. And then in early 1998, I met Jennifer, who's a young lady some of you have met here, and she took my fancy. And I realized that Somehow, circumstances had brought her from the Quad Cities in Iowa to my little corner of Maryland for three months on an internship so that I could get to know her and sweep her off my feet, off her feet with my good charm and good looks. And I think she saw right through that but figured I was good enough to keep around anyway. Uh, when she finished the rest of her schooling, she made plans to move back to the D.C. area and look for a job in her field, which is occupational therapy. And little did we know that the job she'd find wouldn't be in the D.C. area where you expect to find a lot of jobs, but uh, it was just down the road from my little old hometown in the western part of the state, near Cumberland. It's about two hours away from the studios at Potomac Talking Book Services. Now, I'd always planned to move back there someday to raise a family, but I never thought it would be that soon. Uh, she was headed back that way around August of 98, and I planned to follow when my apartment lease was up at the end of the year. But obviously, being two hours away from the studio, uh, this presented kind of a dilemma for me. Uh, I was definitely very happy to be engaged to Jen and to be back in Western Maryland, but I was also very happy working with Potomac, and I wanted somehow to stay with the company. 
But I can tell you that a four-hour-plus daily commute wasn't going to happen. Uh, fortunately, the company wanted me to uh, stay with them, too, so we worked it out that I could work from home three days a week as a reviewer. And for those who don't know, that's someone who listens to recorded books after they're done to catch errors missed in the initial recording. And uh, I'd come to the studios in Bethesda twice a week for monitoring and any other work that needed to be done. Here's where the story takes a turn. Before I made the move, it was suggested to me that I had a voice and delivery that might suit narrating. I don't know why they thought that, but I figured it was worth a try. So I did an audition tape that was sent to National Library Service for approval to read magazines only. It's kind of how you get your foot in the door in a lot of cases. And that was approved. So now I could supplement my income that way. And that was the beginning of my move from behind the microphone, pushing the buttons to in front of it. And in the course of my monitoring and reviewing capacities, I got a chance to hear all the other narrators at the studio that I work with. There's about 35 or 40 of them. And I could pick up on their methods of preparing and their delivery. And I soaked up anything I could in anticipation of making the leap to books at some point. And so after about five or six months of getting my feet wet with magazines, I asked to take a crack at a book audition. In this process, I don't know also if this has been described to you. I apologize if any other narrators who have been to these conventions have described this. But for our studio, we have a prospective narrator record two five-minute passages, one from a fiction book and one from a non-fiction book. And if the narration director at our studio likes what they hear and they think it has a chance of passing the inspection at the National Library Service, they'll send it off and wait to hear what the quality assurance folks over there have to say. So my first audition went off. And after what seemed an interminable wait, the word came back. Mr. Ashby reads too quickly. Not satisfactory. Well, as a guy accustomed to succeeding at what he puts his mind to, this was kind of a blow. But it wasn't a death blow. I wasn't the first person that I knew there to be rejected the first time out. And it's not like if you're rejected once, you can't audition again. So I took that criticism seriously. Next time around, I slowed down some, but not too much. I tried to channel the sound of narrators that I listened to, like uh, Robert Sams, Kimberly Schraff, Terrence Aselford. These are people who I'll listen to read the phone book. Uh, they're, they're just that good. And all the other people I felt I could learn from, even if the lessons they taught me were in what not to do. And I'll keep them nameless, don't worry. So off goes the second audition. And back came the second verdict pretty quickly this time. The nonfiction's okay, but not enough distinction between characters or intensity in fiction. Not satisfactory. Strike two. So I'll admit I mumbled a few choice words to those stupid good-for-nothing mumble-mumble people at NLS at that point. Maybe they just don't know what they're missing out on here. You know, the usual stuff the disgruntled egotist will grouse about. But after I cooled off, I realized, you know, I have a point. Uh, maybe what was wrong was that I was thinking too hard about what other narrators did and trying to emulate them than thinking about what I would do if left to my own devices with any block of text I was given. So I resolved to myself, I don't think I told this to anybody, though, that I'd give it one more try, and if that didn't work, I'd just stick to magazines for the foreseeable future. And as the man once sang, this time I did it my way. 
using the things that I'd learned, but not trying to be the people I'd learned them from. So off that one went. Months passed. No kidding. And in that time, a book came to the studio that I was dying to make my first recorded book. It was one that I'd already read on my own and enjoyed immensely. I don't know if any of you have listened to it, but it's uh, the first autobiography of Mick Foley, who's a professional wrestler, actually. Uh, he's got a fine comedic sense that he wraps around, yeah, there you go, uh, that he wraps around his own personal struggles and heartbreaks in the business. And the deadline to start that book was getting really near, and we actually passed the, the start date that the NLS had uh, given to us. But uh, and another narrator had been assigned that book in case my audition came back with that not satisfactory verdict again. Well, they put a call into the NLS in lieu of hopefully pushing this forward, and NLS listened to my tape again. And guess what? You know whose name you'll find if you look up Mankind Have a Nice Day on the NLS database? Mine. So if there's anyone out there who is a fan of the campy theater of wrestling that I am, and I'm not ashamed to admit that, uh, or even if you're not, and you want to hear what a narrator's first foray into the talking book realm sounded like, I encourage you to check that book out um, and listen to uh, gems like this, uh, which was about the cleanest one I could find in the book. He's a little bit potty mouth, but... Um, <laughs> in lieu of finding a good selection, I found this one which is uh, where Foley is talking about his first meeting with World Wrestling Federation owner Vince McMahon, who's kind of a media presence that a lot of you may know about. Um, he's talking about the, the new gimmick, which Foley, as the former Cactus Jack, isn't too wild about. So this is from Mankind Have a Nice Day. Vince walked into the office looking fit and wealthy. I don't know if that's a proper way to describe a man, but that was the impression that I got. I'd met Vince fleetingly when I did my World Wrestling Federation matches in 1986, but this was over nine years later, and if Vince had remembered our little encounter, he was doing a good job of hiding it. Mike, how are you? boomed the voice, the same voice that I had heard call so many matches from my childhood. Ooh, that wasn't a good sign. I hadn't been called Mike since the early 70s and didn't really enjoy it then. I didn't want to correct him, especially within the first nine seconds of the meeting. It would be almost like telling the president he had mustard on his chin. So instead of speaking up once and correcting the small inaccuracy, I allowed myself to be called the wrong name for two hours. That was a familiar voice. That's Mark Ashby speaking to the ACB convention on Talking Books. That's our program for this month. Working at home from the audio clothes closet, I'm Mike Duke reminding you to stay home, be safe, and practice the personal hygiene you learned in kindergarten. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. ¶¶